This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Oh, Steve, yeah. I'm glad we didn't get that part recorded. Um, (laughs) Well, we could. I I just don't have to go back and edit it, right? This is all editable, right? Uh, Episode 30. Can you believe it? We're up to number 30 already. What a a ride. It's insane. It's it's flying along and over a year now and had quite a few wicked guests. Got a ton more coming up and we uh, actually went back to guest number one today, which was pretty freaking awesome. Always have a riot chatting with Bill. Yeah, so Bill Jack's provincial wild sheep and mountain goat uh, specialist, uh, such a knowledgeable guy, and uh, you know, really providing a lot of leadership there. Uh, it's good to have this dedicated position in BC now. Um, it's it's a new position. We've only had it for a year and a half or whatever it is, and uh, just good that somebody's there minding the gate, keeping an eye on and goats and sheep right and that hasn't happened in the past exclusively so and i don't think they could have picked a a better person for it right he's just so passionate on all levels about goats and sheep absolutely yeah no for sure it's uh he's a good friend of the societies and a good friend of wild sheep and goats so it's uh yeah fantastic great chat today with bill um but before we get into the episode um Mm -hmm. big week for conservation for wild sheep um, we uh, put a press release out. Uh, Abbotsford Fish and Game uh, reached out to us after their AGM. Uh, you know, they have a very big conservation uh, ethic and a very big uh, conservation footprint. Uh, they partnered with us in the past for projects, and uh, we got a call from their treasurer, Ian Baird. Ian reached out, and they've uh, committed $20,000 to uh, wild sheep conservation and, and want to partner with the Wild Sheep Society of BC on that. So. That, that's unreal. And for an organization that doesn't have any wild sheep around them, that they're, they're just this passionate about giving back and, and affecting the, the landscape and all animals that inhabit it. It's just insane the support we've gotten from them. Yeah, we had a meeting uh, earlier this week with uh, Ian Baird, as I mentioned, their treasurer, and Ken Cropley, uh, Ken and Ian on their conservation team, and uh, we we discussed different opportunities for them to get involved. We're going to do an exclusive podcast with them um, uh, in a little while, uh, but basically, um, after discussion, and, and actually we had Bill on, in on that call, Bill Jex as well, uh, so Jill, Bill could provide some input into what's going on provincially with, uh, you know, where some resources were needed and that sort of stuff. And Abbotsford made a decision that they're going to put some money towards um, a Todigan plan that Bill talks about on this podcast. And then another 17500 will go to 
our Fraser River project. Um, and basically what we're going to do, and, and our listeners can listen for this, is what we're going to do is offer, offer an opportunity where we do a match, that Wild Sheep BC will do a match on that 17.5. We've actually reached out to another partner for a match on that. We haven't uh, got a, a call back from them yet. And then ideally what we'll do is we'll get a member match or or our members and so basically you put one dollar to wild sheep and they're going to match it we'll match that up three times ideally so your, your one dollar will go uh and create four dollars for wild sheep in the province just a huge opportunity for people to make their dollars go a long way right oh totally that's insane like i that the support from everybody is had just been out of this world and when i got involved with society a couple of years ago i had no idea people were this passionate and just been incredible to watch grow yeah, and Granby was a classic example of that, right? We just seen people step up and, uh, you know, there's people that, well, one of our members made $25,000 to the Granby project. Uh, so phenomenal, right? It's it's incredible the level of, of support that our members give day in and day out. And, you know, obviously there's a fiscal aspect of it, but it's not just that. It's, you know, the, the support we get through mm-hmm. the communications channels, the volunteer work. You know, it, it's it's all encompassing, and everyone's doing so much, right? I, I Steve, I and you know, you can sit there and say what you want because you're Spruce City as well. But you know, I, I feel our members—you can't find another organization like what we have. Our membership is just—they we rock. It's, it's it's true. We just keep punching above our weight, right? It's 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 what we do. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. So, and and that's that's in testament to our membership for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no inside joke there, right, buddy? So. Nothing at all. Nothing <laughs> at all. Um, so, yeah, it's like really a huge thank you to Abbotsford Fishing Game for their, uh, you know, leadership, and they've done this before. This is not a one-off. Um, and one thing we talked about on the call is, you know, um, with Abbotsford is that this isn't just about wild sheep, right? When when we put that money on the ground in uh, on the Fraser River ecosystem, it benefits um, mule deer, it benefits elk, it benefits all these other species and, and lots of unhuntable species as well, right? So, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, it, it goes far, a long ways for conservation in general. Oh, totally. It, it, it's everything from butterflies to bighorns, right? It's everything that inhabits that landscape benefits from projects like this. Yeah, for sure. And the cool thing is for Abbotsford, and we talked about this on the call as well, is that their members can jump in the car and drive three hours and go and see the wild sheep that are benefiting from the money that they put on the ground there, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they, you know, I, I've got a lot of respect for the leadership there over at Abbotsford, what they've done, and uh, and it's a it's an honor for me to to see the this partnership right develop. And you know, we've worked with them in the past, and you know, we've indicated to them that we want to work together in the future and and you know, really do some impactful things for wildlife in the province, right? So. Oh, it, it can't get any better. As we, we can keep saying that the passion is there, but it's, yeah, not much more to say on that, eh? Absolutely. So with that, episode 30, uh, Bill Jex, Provincial Wild Sheep Mountain Goat Specialist. You're going to love this chat. Um, thanks again to Bill for all you do. And uh, be sure to check out the show notes. Uh, uh, the Ministry of Flynn Row, under Bill's leadership, created a uh, natal app for uh, wild sheep and mountain goats. And uh, when you're out there on the landscape, be sure to do your part. Um, this is confidential information. Only uh, one or two people in the ministry see it from uh, what I'm learning from Bill. Uh, it's confidential, but it really goes a long way for establishing trends and keeping an eye on wild sheep. And especially if there's a disease event, it could make the difference for wildlife in the in the province and wild sheep in particular and mountain goats. So um, 
yeah. So check it out. Episode 30, Bill Jex. If we told you tomorrow that elk, black bear, and bighorn sheep were next, would you speak up? Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildsheepsociety.com slash act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Good morning, Bill. How are things from beautiful Smithers, BC? Well, the sun is shining today. A little bit of frost in the mornings, but it's warming up to the mid-teens. So that's it's feeling like spring, summer now. <laughs> Fantastic. So, you know, I, I get to see you down in, you know, in at the uh, Wild Sheep Foundation board meetings. We often touch base there and uh, we've kind of missed out on that with uh, COVID. So, you, you know, we've all kind of been locked down in little corners of the world here and haven't been able to get together. It's kind of been a, a tough go for all of us here lately, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it certainly has. Right. Because especially, um, you know, society, what it's plugged into, you know, across interprovincially and internationally. And then, you know, my role and, and our wildlife health folks too, right. Their role in terms of, being some leaders on some of the files that that are near and dear to sheep and goat people's hearts. So uh, it is a challenge, this, this border stuff. Yeah, for sure. So Bill, um, you know, for our listeners, you were on our very first podcast, uh, Talk is Sheep, uh, which was awesome. We did, did a great horn aging uh, uh, talk with you. and But we didn't talk a ton about the conservation stuff. And I know most people that listen to our podcast know who Bill Jex is. Uh, your your reputation goes far and wide in a very good way. But, uh, you know, for kind of our newer listeners, can you just kind of give us an overview, talk about your position and just a little bit of your background uh, for wildlife management and conservation here in British Columbia, Bill? Sure. So I've been, um, I guess I came to the province in 96. That's when I started with BC government. And and I've worked sort of with wildlife and habitat, some enforcement stuff through those ranks. And and now I hold the position of provincial wild sheep and mountain goat specialist, which is a, a position that sort of uh, grew out in necessity starting in about 2012 through to 2015. There was a lot of conversation in British Columbia about the importance of uh, wild sheep and mountain goats. Um, they're not the tip as much as they are a freezer species, they're not the typical freezer species that people think about when they think about moose and elk and deer. So, um, a lot of the funding that became available really went into those sort of bread and butter hunted species, right? Not so much into sheep and goats, but as the international focus ramped up and as wild sheep society became. Um, really grew, right? I mean, if you look at the evolution of society itself over the last decade, uh, it's grown so much and it's taken on such a leadership role in a whole bunch of different conservation initiatives. That really helped sort of bring that, uh, the need for this sort of capacity in government forward. And I was just fortunate enough to be able to be the one that was on the ground when a lot of this was happening. And, and um, yeah, it, it worked out for me. Yeah, fantastic, Bill. And, uh, you know, you, you're you always uh, always involved in everything that we're doing. You know, we're always reaching out to you and you've been such a, a leader um, uh, from the government perspective, uh, 
you know, in everything that we do projects wise and just, uh, you know, a big part of what you're doing is, is the uh, communication and outreach and having people understand the importance of, of wildlife and wild sheep and goats on the landscape. So we're really grateful for that. Um, so, you know, Bill, when we had you on before, we talked a lot about, um, horn aging and that sort of stuff. I'm hoping today we can kind of, you know, peel back the layers in BC and take a look at, at wild sheep issues, some of the concerns, some of the things at the high level that you're really concerned about. Um, and, and let's not limit to wild sheep as well. You know, a lot of us, uh, are passionate about, uh, mountain goats as well. It's very relevant. So, you know, if you, if you don't mind for us, let's start kind of at a high level and, and what's on the radar. And, and if you want, you can, we'll go into the sheep side of things or we can do sheep and goats together. I'll kind of leave that to you, but kind of take us through a walk through BC and just kind of see what's on your radar and what you're concerned about as, uh, in your position. Yeah. So, you know, for me, the health aspect, what we've learned about the health challenges that are common between wild sheep and mountain goats. Um, those are, those are first and foremost, those are the, those are the things that once the horse gets out of the barn are going to be really hard to handle. So, you know, have from a habitat perspective, we can, yeah, we can recognize that we might have done something wrong or we didn't do enough on one and we can fix that. Um, from a regulation standpoint, same thing, you know, maybe our regulations didn't land and produce the outcomes we wanted them to. Well, fine, we can amend those. But the disease thing is the one thing that really is like trying to hold a cup of water in your bare hands. It's, it just keeps trickling through your fingers, no matter how tight you squeeze them together. So for me um, and, and for our wildlife health folks like Dr. Thacker um, and Helen's Dr. Swancha, she's still involved as a, as a emeritus status with government. So we continue to be um, plugged into that uh, wild sheep and mountain goat health as much as we can. And uh, learning so many new things. For example, like um, we currently have an issue in the radium area where we have some bighorn sheep dying from elk liver fluke inf infection. Uh, it's not been recorded in science literature before. There was uh, a captive study done and um, showed that, yeah, sheep die when they uh, get this liver fluke. And the reason is because the liver fluke didn't evolve with sheep, it evolved with elk. So it doesn't know how to behave in a sheep and it usually leads to mortality. So we have everything from mycoplasma, which, you know, the society has done a great job sort of, um, educating the membership and we've tried to educate the public, uh, collaboratively. We're trying to educate producers um, domestic producers and domestic managers and, and the regulators in the domestic world as well. So we're really tackling that, I think, in a pretty good way. But, you know, you get these curveballs that come in out of nowhere and all of a sudden liver fluke that nobody ever knew was going to be an issue with bighorn sheep is all of a sudden an issue in a localized population of sheep. So trying to figure out what we can do to try to uh, abate that threat and manage that threat is is something where we're all sort of just just sort of pounding our heads against the wall. But you know, so that's the the big thing on the health stuff. There's these new um, there's these new challenges that we didn't know about that no one else has had to deal with. But then there's the ongoing work that we're doing with Movi 
in that sense, um, we were able to get some together for wildlife funding, which was awesome to actually uh, focus on CI nasal swabs. So when hunters bring in their bighorn sheep this year or their mountain of the uh, Cranbrook area, they're going to be asked uh, if we can go ahead and swab those noses because we wanted the the concept that I pitched was that we it'd be nice to have a rotating series of um, samples so we can hopefully get an early cue when when there's an issue breaking out and um, of course budgets are limited so it's not that we can do the whole province all at once but I think if we do this staged approach um, that's going to be a good thing so like I said regions three four and eight mountain goat hunters um, you know you're going to be asked if we can take a swab or two of the nasal cavity all bighorn sheep harvested this year we want to try and swab and then there's a, a couple MUs in Amanika 7.2 and 7.5 that we just would like some more um, health information on so kind of rolling that out from a health perspective and then uh, uh, like I mentioned uh, Dr. Swancha earlier she continues to be involved in the disease delivery and does the disease science and research and so she's has some trials that are ongoing with some producers in southern bc and um, they have some some encouraging data there and uh, are in the process of writing some of that up so that it has some legs underneath it um, as you know part of the challenge we always face when we try to bring forward a new message or new information is there's there's people that have healthy skepticism and and I don't blame anybody for that you know when government tries to say something's one way you should always uh, make sure you're well informed on the issue and not just uh, blindly accept it so I, I I get that completely so that's part of the reason we're being a little bit more diligent uh, encouraging Helen's work down there um, the cross-ministry initiative with Ministry of Agriculture is starting to get close to generating some products. There's been a lot of work internally over the last year with some fact sheets and outreach um, materials, uh, and we're really hopeful that that's going to uh, uh, hit the ground here soon. So from a health perspective, I guess the last thing that sort of um, top front front and center in my in my mind would be the um, south okanagan bighorns now it's a cross-border population of bighorn sheep and the folks in penticton office are trying to stay on top of that and they're really working closely with their washington and idaho colleagues south of the border and uh, you know that that cluster of sheep they have a uh, Movi challenge, but they also have Seropti's mite challenge, and and uh, you know again that's sort of a new a new thing that it, it, you know BC is a leader in a lot of things. It's just some of those things we don't necessarily want to be leaders on, and, mm -hmm. and that's 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 one of those challenges. So from a health perspective, that's sort of what's on my radar. Um, from a I guess more of a, a project perspective. You know, I'm involved with um, providing advice on the Fraser River and the Chasm area uh, test and remove projects. 
we're so fortunate to have some very competent biologists down in those regions that can lead that. So, you know, sometimes I'm the the guy that's just sitting there smiling and waving and cheering on, but that's a that's a role that you know somebody still has to have somewhere and, and uh, really good and and I'm just trying to support them as best I can with the information and some communication with the nations that I have relationships with. Um, you know, Peace Williston. There's some habitat work going on up there. Some enhanced fi uh, forest. Sorry, some habitat enhancement using fire. Uh, projects again, you know, Wild Sheep Society's plugged into both those projects, and um, we're working right now in the northwest in the Tottigan area. Again, society is is uh, uh, anting up some dollars there, and and Abbotsford Rod and Gun Club and uh, is also supporting that that work, and that's basically a reassessment of a burn area that was done in the mid '80s, and uh, we want to go back in there do a baseline assessment to see how it's changed since that burn and then potentially target some some either some replicate areas or some new areas for for some of that enhancement to have a, a sensitive ecosystem unit there as well it's a grassland ecosystem that that um, you know is fairly rare in that landscape so from a conservation lands perspective, that's another section in the ministry that looks after that sort of sensitive habitat world. Those folks are interested in seeing, you know, stuff happen on the ground too, to make sure that those ecosystems remain intact and, and aren't threatened. And then, um, uh, you know, we have ongoing student work in the, uh, certainly down in the uh, Okanagan, looking at helicopter mountain goat interactions um, in the north, uh, the Cassiar work, Grace ends, my MSc students probably going to be defending her master's here towards the end of the summer. Um, so we're looking forward to a compendium type document ready at that point. And I've been in conversations with UNBC with uh, professors there and students there looking at um, trying to use some of that really intense collar data that we had from the Cassiar sheep and um, start to draw sort of correlations between mineral lake use and and transit time and all that sort of stuff. So there is uh, there's a little bit more sort of sciencey stuff happening as well. And then from uh, an international sort of perspective on that along that same line, um, Chris Proctor is working with me with the Western Association of Fish Wildlife Agencies Wild Sheep Working Group. Uh, and we're right now working on a compendium document that is a new guidelines or a new series of standards for capture and handling of wild sheep and mountain goats. Um, the last one was in the early 2000s and that was at a time when we hadn't even clinically diagnosed Moby. So there's a need for that document to be updated. And it talks about um, capture techniques. It talks about uh, selecting different types of delivery and projects. It talks about um, drugs and net guns and clover traps and drift fences and all the sort of regular stuff right down to, um, you know, if you're handling desert bighorn sheep, you pretty much have to have a trailer full of ice because they're gonna overheat on you, right? It's not something 
we have to worry so much about with thinhorn sheep. But, you know, these challenges across the range of wild sheep, um, until you've done a project and you have a little bit of that wisdom, can all be new and overwhelming. So we want to make sure with the transition and turnover and staff that's happening in all the jurisdictions um, that sort of document they could go to and seek advice from. So, uh, Bill, there's there's so much to uncover there. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I got a whole bunch of questions for you. But let's talk about um, uh, this document you're working on with, with Chris Proctor. Because um, it's interesting. I've, there's been an evolution. With our Fraser project, uh, Wild Sheep BC was involved. And I know... Um, in year two years ago, when we did the test and capture, we had the biomeme units. Uh, testing was done on site, and it was a test and remove scenario. Basically, some species that were infected had to be removed from the herd, um, and that was done uh, on site. So that you know they'd be captured, there'd be a biomeme, there'd be all the testing, you get the results, and then if infected, they'd have to be removed from the herd. But now this year it evolved, and the animals were captured tested, released, then all the samples were sent back to the central unit, uh, central area where the helicopter was. Uh, results were were made known, and then the next day they would go out and remove if necessary, right? So there was an evolution even there, just a small thing. So it's interesting to see how a big project like the Fraser Project has, has changed the way business has been done, probably for the better, I guess, hey? So. Well, yeah, and, and just the scope of that project itself. It started fairly localized, you know, like eating an elephant, right? One bite at a time. So you got to start at a small local scale, make sure that that when you deliver that project, you've covered off those sort of population closure questions. Uh, you know, you have an idea of the, the human challenges that exist in that area from pulling off a project. And then, yeah, you get some successes, you tweak your approaches. And, and now you look at that project and it's growing in geography, which is important for that population, that meta population of sheep. It's, it really is critical that it continues to grow and build out like it does. And, and I know that, you know, the society has been a huge supporter of that and it really is one of your sort of flagship projects and, and uh, it is a very important project to deliver. Like that's the, that's the, the home or I guess the source of so many of our translocations of wild sheep reintroductions in, you know, across the U.S. in particular. So it's, it's that population would be tragic if, if we couldn't do something to make it better. Well, and I find this interesting, Bill, and this kind of ties into all the other stuff that we were talking about. But, uh, you know, with our Fraser project... It started small, you know, a three-year project. You know, budget was not that small. It was maybe $200,000, which is significant. It's the biggest investment the society's ever been involved in. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. You just mentioned Abbotsford Fish and Game, and uh, you were on that call the other night when we were working with Abbotsford Fish and Game and about allocating funds, uh, and they've committed uh, $17,500 to that Fraser River project. And that's one thing our project chair, Chris Barker, um, you know, mirrored is that this project started out as a three-year project. It was, you know, let's get a baseline assessment, see where we are with wild sheep, how they're doing on the landscape, range uses, all that sort of stuff. But Chris has always uh, commented that, you know, his vision for this project was 10 or 15 years down the road where we see some significant increases in uh, wild sheep numbers on there. So, you know, working with the disease issue, 
but much bigger than that. You know, then we move into habitat work. You know, working on working the, with the government, ideally with an exclusion zone, so we can have wild sheep having a range usage. It's not going to be, you know, they're not going to be threatened by disease. So, you know, really a long term approach. And I think that's one of the exciting things for us that I see is that these last three or four years, the society's been heavily invested in getting these baseline assessments done. You know, we got involved in the Stone Sheep Project, that great Cassiar project that you're doing, um, that Grace is involved in. You know, understanding how our sheep are doing, where we're at, you know, what are our numbers like, um, you know, where are we at disease-wise. But the exciting part for me is now we can transition into, uh, you know, what can we do to really help these sheep? You know, what can we do to mitigate disease? What can we do to help the habitat? And for me, that's really exciting. You know, we look at Toddigan and the work you're doing there, um, you know, possibly a burn down the road, a prescribed burn. So, you know, for me, that's really exciting to see these projects. And I think for our, our listeners and our members that support us, I think these next, you know, this next decade is pretty exciting because now we've kind of got a handle, more of a handle on what's happening with our sheep so we can start doing the right things to really help grow them now too, right? So, Yeah, I think, you know, what you described there is kind of the way I think we really have to approach a lot of what we do, right? We start as learners. We start, you know, we seek advice and wisdom we can from people that have done things in a similar way before we roll it out on the ground we learn from that we adapt and change and and then we become doers and teachers and I think that's where the society is with the Fraser project in particular is is transitioning now you were you were the doer learner and now you're kind of the doer teacher in some ways because of the experience that's been gained in that project and and I, I do like Chris's sort of mindset, right? It's it's the short-term delivery, and then that allows you to hit that sort of medium and long-term vision, right? And that's it really is the way I think that we we need to be thinking. We we've not had that ability um, to sort of hope to have a reasonably stable budget to do that sort of work before. So where you guys and, and, you know, with government changing the way it's funding model as well, you know, we're able to think that, okay, in five years time on this work, we might still be able to access dollars for it. It's, and that changes your mindset. It allows you to be a little bit more effective, like you described there with expanding the, the geography and, and just tweaking the way that, you know, the removal aspects happen because, you know, the dollars are going to be there when you need to go back to re remove. You know, in the day when we didn't know if we had those dollars, then you were better off to remove the questionable um, individual sheep because you may not have the dollars to go back and get that one if it turned out to be positive um, out of the population. So, yeah, as, as that funding becomes more stable, it can benefit how you do stuff on the ground so much. Yeah, and I think one of the things we see, and I, I find this fascinating to me, is, you know, we've got a, a Abbotsford fishing game, right? Lower mainland, um, you know, and of course their members go out and they recreate and they see these wild sheep. Um, but, you know, you got a, an organization like that, that, you know, that's not their mandate to look after the wild sheep of uh, northern BC or the Fraser River wild sheep. And they're stepping up and getting involved because they care about wildlife and conservation. Um, it's pretty phenomenal. And then we look from a larger scale, we've got support from uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation um, down down south of the border and the support we've got there from uh, the national chapter, but also their chapter and affiliates, um, you know, Eastern chapter has been involved, Midwest 
And, uh, you know, I think Midwest committed $32,000 to that Fraser River project. Uh, to me, it's phenomenal to see that sort of support coming, you know, money coming in from out of the country to support uh, our wild sheep population. So, you know, that's pretty encouraging. And, you know, I always get a kick out of Chris. He goes, uh, you know, you, you tell us what you need, we'll find the money. He goes, you let us worry about that. That's what we're good at. So, um, you know, there's a lot more work to be done, obviously, but it's pretty cool that uh, to see this level of support from all these different corners of the world that you really maybe didn't necessarily expect you'd find it, right? So pretty fantastic for, for me to see that as a, you know, as a conservationist. Well, and, and the, you know, even the, the evolution of the perceptions and attitudes, right? Now we have domestic sheep and goat producers that are standing beside us saying we have a disease issue that needs to be addressed. And it's, it affects both groups. It affects both, both, I, I wouldn't use the term industries, but it, but it affects both of those groups, right? It, it, and so, yeah, who'd have thought, right? The day where those two groups were pitted against each other and could hardly sit in the same room to now stand side by each and say, yeah, this is an issue and we want to work together to fix it. That's a huge evolution. Well, and that was one of the things I wanted to touch on too, Bill. I had a note here around domestic producers. And that's one of the things that's really interesting. I got a phone call yesterday from Chris Barker, actually maybe two days ago. And Chris was just, he was on fire. And I'm like, buddy, what, what's going on? Why are you so excited? He goes, well, he goes, I just got off the phone and I was talking to Dr. Swansha and I was talking to Jeremy Ayotte. Um, and, you know, there's a some domestic producers in the uh, interior that are really keen to work with us and they really care about wild sheep and they want to, you know, they want to do what they can to support, um, you know, make sure wild sheep are healthy. And we're seeing so much more of that. You know, we've seen a small bit of that and it just, it's starting to build on itself with this educational component and having the dialogue and clearly producers care about wildlife, right? There's, there's no doubt about that. We've never doubted that. Uh, but to see them step up and, and actually make a sacrifice, it's costing them money. It's, it's money out of their pocket to do this. Um, that's really encouraging. And that gives me a lot of hope moving forward about, working with these producers, I think that there is a solution. Um, you know, it's, it's going to mean sacrifices on both sides of the table. But um, to me, that's really, really encouraging and, and exciting to see. And I think the work that, you know, you've done, Bill, and, and certainly a, a huge part of what Helen's done over the past, you know, really her entire career has been phenomenal, right? So it's it's pretty exciting. And, and I'm, I'm really encouraged to see some of these developments and i think there's a, a bright future for wild sheep uh, if we can continue that trend yeah well you know i agree and i think we just have to keep being honest with people and being pretty open and transparent um, because it really is sort of fear of the uncertain that that drives some of those um uh, what unfavorable or or unrealistic perceptions right it, it's people Gen generally want to do the right thing, um, you know, but fear is that is that factor that can take a logical person's mind and twist it to the illogical. So, um, yeah, we just have to keep communicating, like you said, keep educating, keep promoting positive outcomes. And, and I think that'll go a long way. Yeah, fantastic. Um, okay, so I want to jump back to a couple things that we talked about earlier. Let's. Um, one of the things we talked about was this disease issue. So, you know, I think in some ways we in the wild sheep community of educating people around Movi, but the downside is is that there's all these other diseases too, right? And you touched on that. And I think that 
uh, one of the things that we need to realize, and one of the things I realized working through the Wild Sheep Foundation and, and being part of Chapter and Affiliates and all this dialogue is that this disease issue is much bigger than Movi. Movi's uh, currently by far the worst offender right now for us, but it isn't limited to Movi. There's a number of diseases that are affecting wildlife and, and something that we have to be, I think, cognizant of, um, you know, as conservationists and, and, and we're out and recreating and, and knowing that Movi's not the only thing that's killing our wild sheep. Yeah, I, w I would agree. It, 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 I mean, we have ORF, contagious eczema, so that's becoming more prevalent in our mountain goat populations. Um, I, I, I shared an image of a young uh, mountain goat kid last year. I mean, the kid's clearly going to die. It, it, it was uh, heavily scabbed and crusted in the eyes and ears and the mouth and nose, which is pretty sort of... Uh, uh, typical sort of look to that severe infection of uh, fourth and um, these new challenges with things like liver fluke and and seropties mite those sorts of things are gonna it's not just mycoplasma it's it's a host of other things and so you know if people take a little bit of ownership to that say okay I'm, I'm, I'm gonna walk and I'm gonna take you know, my horse or whatever I'm taking with me out into the woods, as long as it's in good shape and it's well looked after, there's never an issue. It's, it's the, the ones don't get the attention they need or that, that cause the problems with, in terms of introducing parasites and, and other issues into the environment, it, it can be the ones that aren't um, diligently cared. Good way to say it. Yeah, for sure, Bill. So, you know, on that note, um, I guess, uh, you know, one of the things that we're seeing a little bit of and that's rearing up a little bit, and, and I don't want to go after any any specific group, but, you know, we see a little bit of interface there with pack animals and goats and llamas. Um, can we touch a little bit on that, on some of the concerns and, and maybe some of the, you know, the risks to, to wild sheep? And, and I don't want this to devolve into, and I know it won't with you, but... Uh, you know, picking on anything, but, you know, what are some of the concerns and what can somebody that maybe wants to be in the backcountry with a lamb or a goat, or what are some of the things that they should be thinking about or considering when they're out there recreating? Um, and I know that we're particularly concerned about it in our, in our thin horn, uh, you know, areas. So can you just touch a little bit on that, on some of the, the things we should be thinking about and maybe why we should be a little concerned about it? Well, sure. So it's, it's that, like you touched on before, it's not just more a zoo that goes with the the animals. So if you have um, high health stock, then yeah, it's you're probably never going to pose a risk or be a risk to wildlife. Um, un unfortunately, times though, you don't know. And what we don't know is what can, can get us. And with thin-horned sheep in particular, uh, we know that they are immunologically naive. They are, they've not been exposed to the same type of parasites and pathogen loads that bighorn sheep as a metapopulation have, right? So they, the effect of an exposure um, can be a lot more devastating because they don't have any of those natural immunities or natural safeguards against um, those, those agents, those parasites. And so, yeah, we, I would love to see the day when we can repeal that prohibition for camelids in thinhorn country. Um, and we're just develop, trying to develop some science around that. And, and um, because 
uh, you know, once the horse is out of the barn, it's too late at that point. And, and we have the world's only um, stone sheep. So that demands a little bit more diligence in our caution, I think. And, and it, it was never an intent to, uh, to um, I guess, cause a problem or an inconvenience for people's recreation. But um, it's just when we look at the risk, the potential risk, until we know more, uh, it just was something we had to do. But hopefully that, that will uh, change as we get more science. I know the Wild Sheep Foundation in the South is trying to have a conversation with the uh, uh, Pack Lama Association down there. Um, we have had conversations with um, the Canadian Association uh, before in, and um, Helen, Dr. Swancha is in conversation with some of her counterparts in the East. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we'll have a little bit more to offer on that that will give us better, more supported information. But for now, we have the risk assessment that was done by the um, uh, coastal health folks and you know, it just said that at this point because we don't have information the risk is high and, and it warrants a little bit more precaution so that's what we're basing our decisions on right now okay sounds great bill so uh, maybe this is appropriate now that we jump into this so one of the things the society has been advocating for is an exclusion zone right we want areas where wild sheep can be wild sheep and and obviously we want you know domestic producers that you know have a very uh, uh, productive and profitable business and, and, uh, and we obviously want them to coexist. But one thing that we do know is that wild sheep and domestic sheep are better off not being in the same area. They're better off to be apart. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of our listeners have heard us or, or seen some of this before that there's a, a government action regulation around, um, uh, an exclusion zone in northern BC. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? And I know you've been involved in drafting that document. Um, you know what that involves and what the principles around that GAR order is and why it's important. Well, I guess we know why it's important, but you know, kind of the details of that and and how that's going to help our wild sheep. Yeah. So it was um, it, it under the government action regulations, which really uh, a FERPA or a Forest and Range Practices Act um, subset of regulations. Uh, it, it allows you to uh, establish protection areas or special management areas might be a way to describe it better um, for different species or for different issues at hand. And in the case of the Thinhorn specified area, it is a big piece of geography where uh, that overlaps Thinhorn sheep range with a buffer because we know that there are forays that happen, especially with young um, bachelor group rams, they will foray widely. And, and uh, we wanna make sure that we don't have uh, domestic sheep or goats that might be carrying mycoplasma over pneumonia, come into contact with those um, foraying young rams that, that don't know any better. I mean, wildlife really does not know private land from crown land or uh, indigenous lands. So, they, they're doing their thing and, and um, sometimes they get into bad spots. So the purpose of that special area um, uh, esta uh, establishing that polygon was really just prevention, trying to put a line on a map that allowed um, range users and domestic producers to be better informed and 
and to reduce the risk. So that's that's what we've done there. Um, we've taken it one step further from that though. So that order is established in Skeena region, so region six. Um, my understanding is it's established now in, in the Amanika and the, the peace region is still looking uh, at um, pinning that down, but there's a lot of things happening in the peace. So um, there, I think it's on their to-do list. They just don't have it quite wrapped up just yet. The, uh, in the same time, um, Dr. Swansha and I were contacted by our Alberta colleagues and back in the 90s, we had BC had developed a suite of forestry guidelines, and they were guidelines for the use of domestic sheep and goats for silviculture purposes. And for those people that don't know what silviculture is, basically when a company goes in and, and logs the ground, um, you get a bunch of regrowth and you get some of its some of its desirable merchant trees and other stuff is is shrubbery and brush and that sort of thing that can actually um, inhibit the growth of your merch trees. So it reduces your ability to go back in a timely way and, and harvest that forest again. So um, silviculture practices basically are, are the caretaking of those cut blocks after, after they've been logged. And the intent of the guidelines, because uh, with the use of chemicals, of course, many people feel strongly about the use of chemicals or, or not using chemicals. Um, using domestic sheep and goats along linear corridors or in cut blocks to manage that brush hazard uh, can be a good solution because it's not it's not spraying chemicals on the ground and, and those chemicals aren't going into the soil and the water. But um, so we've been working with Alberta to, to update that 1990s guidelines document with new health information, um, new testing procedures, new considerations and that is very close. It should be wrapped up, I'm thinking, by this summer. Um, we stepped away from it just a little bit over the last couple months because Alberta, that actually has a, a little bit more active domestic sheep and goat uh, silviculture use than we do here in BC, um, they needed something to issue their contracts. So they needed some guidance. And so we turned our mind to specific contract guidance as opposed to this guidelines document. So we've stepped away from it a little bit, but we're gonna come back to that here real soon and and, and have that available in a, at a, in a bigger way for both British Columbia and Alberta um, forest companies, but also those folks that administer looking after rights of ways, you know, along pipelines where you need to do that forage and, and brushing work or um, other linear corridors. So um, that's a that's a product that should be out before too long too. That sounds good, Bill. Yeah, and it, you know, on that note, it seems also, you know, uh, you know, we, we've been talking internally here with the society and that's one of the things that is kind of on the radar that is a concern for our Northern Thinhorns as well is, is kind of access management, right? And, uh, you know, the effects that, you know, this increased pressure in our northern country is having on our, our thin horns. So um, obviously that's a something that's kind of on the radar that we're watching closely. Obviously we want to see industry do well and, and be successful, but on the same token, there's a lot of pressure from a whole bunch of different stakeholders and user groups that are affecting our thin horns. And, uh, and obviously it's in the south as well, but it's something that's very prevalent in the north that we've been talking about and concerned about. So, Yeah, the difference, I, I agree with exactly what you said, that 
a little bit of the nuance though is that the access in the south is so much um, greater already like the density of roads in in the south is a lot higher so you are less apt to expose uh, you know a local population of sheep to new access and new hunters and new pressures um, because they probably have already seen that right those bighorn sheep in the okanagan they're they're, they're fully um, embedded in that sort of human landscape it's a little bit different in thin orange country where if you punch a new road in or a new mine road or exploration trail goes in um, you know those animals really won't be familiar with the vehicles and the accessibility and the pressure that comes with it so yeah we want it certainly is a priority to try to manage that aspect of our environment because um, you, you know we can only respond as quickly as we can respond and and if a new access goes into an area and mountain goats you know particularly um, being sensitive because you can still harvest female mountain goats um, you know that can have a population effect if if there's too much harvest in one year at one time uh, so yeah it's it's access is a big consideration okay um yeah for sure uh, so on that note bill uh you know we have a lot of our hunter conservationists or listeners uh, are going to be out recreating this year probably in the backcountry um you know maybe hunting sheep or goats or whatever it may be what you know we talked about these different um areas that you're going to start doing swabs in region three, four, and eight for goats and, uh, you know, try and get all the big horn sheep swabbed in the province. Um, so that's obviously clearly how they can help there, but what else can people do? Um, and this might be a good opportunity to, to jump into your app. And, and I know people are out there right now recreating, um, what, what can, um, you know, our listeners do to support the wild sheep and wild goats, uh, on the, on the landscape? Yeah. Well, the first, I mean, everybody has a camera with them now, right? So, uh, if you see wildlife, most people do, they, they take pictures of it. So, but um, if you see something that looks odd about the wildlife you're looking at, just really try to take a picture of it and then get a hold of your, your local uh, wildlife biologist in your region and, and they can, they can direct that um, to whoever the right person is to look at it because, you know, we are, uh, well, I mentioned that that mountain goat kid photo that was sent to me last year. And um, it was an area that was, oh, okay, well, it looks like we have ORF now in this area. And, and that's something we're gonna have to, we're gonna wanna watch how that population responds to that. So um, that little nuggets of information like that are always really important. Now the uh, BC um, mountain goat and sheep app, we originally built that on the notion of trying to identify natal range because we were seeing changes in lambing and kidding dates in the north and that's a response to changing environmental conditions so um, a bunch of the anybody who works in industry probably is familiar with you know timing windows around different types of activities that you do and those timing windows are built around sensitive periods for for wildlife in different areas and fish as well so if those timing windows are no longer relevant, then on one sense, we're constraining industry and when we shouldn't because it's 
the, those constraints aren't accomplishing anything. But also from a wildlife and habitat standpoint, um, if you don't have the protections in place when you actually when the wildlife and habitat actually needs it, then you're not helping that population either. So we built that app um, and hoped people would pick it up and use it to help us find kids and lambs, and they did. People helped us. We found uh, new mineral licks that we didn't know existed. We found um, issues with highway crossings where ewes were taking lambs across highway and that, um, there's a vehicle strike risk. So um, by sorts of things out of that submitted data from citizen scientists, that that's helpful information. That allows us to address problems before they become real problems. But now that the use of that app is actually um, increased more. People are showing, they're, they're identifying now, you know, rams or, or you groups in September and October. Well, that's still important information. And, and we've seen some areas now, especially in response to wildfires with changing distributions of sheep, you know, I mean, BC, the last decade has had a whole bunch of big wildfires. So um, we're seeing responses in wildlife because of that. So knowing where those sheep are moving to, going, that's that's turning out to be an unrealized benefit that we didn't know was going to come out of that app. But so yeah, people, if they can download that app, we've, it is uh, on a link on our ministry webpage. It's in our wildlife health um, uh, section. And yeah, if they can use that and record those observations and take a picture, that's very helpful. So we'll, we'll definitely include the um, the link to that um, in the uh, show notes here, Bill. And 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 actually, well, it's a good idea to remind. And you did you did reach out a while ago and say, hey, can you guys share this? And we haven't done a great job of that. So we'll uh, we got our social media guy here. Steve's going to get on that uh, after, <laughs> after we talk here. But on that note, Bill, um, do you guys want to know everything? So I'm out stone sheep hunting this fall or whatever. I'm out hiking in the in the Rockies and, and see, see some sheep. Do you guys, if I see rams, that sort of stuff, is all that data going to help you or is that just kind of uh, noise for you guys? Is, is it as much we can give you? Is that better? More the better? Yeah. Yeah. With respect to, for that app, sheep and goats. Yes. Yeah. It okay. is helpful. We have some cross border populations of, of sheep in this province and uh, you know, the narrow bighorn group is, is one population. So, um, understanding if sheep are turning up in areas that we didn't know, uh, that's really important. We have, and, and I'll give you an example. So we have a compulsory inspection uh, point location for one of those rams that was well outside um, where we thought their distribution was. Now we're, you know, we're kind of navel gazing that right now to see if it was maybe an error made on the entry, you know, did they put down... Uh, the wrong location or was there, you know, uh, uh, you put down a, a three instead of an eight or something like that in the coordinates. Is there a human error factor to that? But um, so, yeah, if people are out and they have that app, it's geo-referenced or you can you can add a, and drop a pin on your reference location. Um, you know, the narrow way is just a good example of where that we have a data point that doesn't mesh with our polygon of distribution and and it would be really important for us to know that because then we can manage those disease risks and we can manage that access risk and 
uh, it just allows us to be so much more effective. For sure. And on that note, Bill, if somebody sees, say, uh, you know, domestic sheep in th- in uh, in a wild sheep range, um, is there any opportunity to report? I know that you know they can report it through RAP or they can reach out to us, and we get reports often about this. But uh, is there an opportunity through that app to do anything, or or not really? That's not really what it's designed for. Yeah, it, we um, when we built it, we wondered about adding that comment field oppor- option, but um, we just don't have the ability to to man that aspect of it. So right now, the data when we go into query, we can pull it by um, species and by geography, and you know we can scale that geography. So if we have an area that we're really interested in, we can drill right down, and, or we can look at big picture stuff. But those comments you know, like that about a domestic sheep or something, they would be lost in that. They wouldn't be something that we could rel- relatively easily access and understand. So we opted to keep the form as simple as we could and um, and just hope that if people see those sorts of things or they see something they're concerned with, that they're going to phone the region and they're going to talk to a wildlife biologist. That really is uh, important. We've, um, you know, when I started in the 90s, it was common to really have a lot of engagement with the public. People would phone, people would come in, there was a lot of that sort of face-to-face communication. And we would get these nuggets and morsels of information that would help us be better uh, wildlife and land managers. And we've transitioned away from that a little bit. But I would encourage people now, if you see something that um, looks out of out of sorts, or um, you know, you harvest an animal and there's there's something that's not right about it. Yeah, pick up. Make sure there's all kinds of communication options now. Make sure you're letting somebody know that you found something that's different because uh, we're not out there as much as we would like to be, and and that information is helpful. We've t- we've talked about uh, disease and habitat and citizen science. The one thing we haven't touched on that I I want to know a little bit more about is predation. Where does that fit in when it comes to lambs and goats and sheep and all the fun stuff there? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, predators are part of the landscape, right? And and British Columbia, um, some would say is a blessing, some would say it's a curse. We've got a full spectrum of predators, right? We everything from um, short-tailed um, golden eagles to grizzly bears. So uh, it, they do have an effect on wildlife. They do have an effect on wildlife populations. And, um, but you know, if, if the world is somewhat in balance, then there is a role and a place for, for predators. It's when that world starts to get out of balance in some ways that you'll see those groups take advantage of that. And, you know, for example, I was talking to a fellow from Alaska a few, three years ago now. We bumped into him in the airport after coming back on my way back from um, the Wild Sheep Foundation uh, convention. And we were talking about wolf uh, predation on, on doll sheep. And he was saying that they had an active wolf culling uh, program there and that they had uh, really, um, you know, reduced their wolf numbers. And in the his uh, geography that he was referencing, wolves were an active predator of that doll sheep population. So they're part of it. You know, a lot of people talk about moose and caribou, but 
Um, wolves do target sheep in some areas where that terrain is conducive to them doing that. They're smart animals. That's how they survive. And he was saying, you know, so we we took this on and and the government of Alaska supported this cull and, and we've been doing it for several years now. He said, but we've seen a change. He said, we don't have wolves anymore, but we've got coyotes. So what are your thoughts on coyotes? And I, I told him, well, if I had the choice, I'd take the wolves over the coyotes because the coyotes are smaller and so much more effective at killing lambs than, than wolves are. So, you know, we, we just have to be aware that every intervention that we do, um, that we think ahead about the opportunities for maybe worse outcomes. And, and we don't have a tool um, to manage golden eagles, but golden eagles are a major predator of wild sheep. And, you know, just this year alone, we're, there's a new project going on in the Atlan area. Uh, sheep were collared and, and we're watching those uh, animals use that habitat and that landscape. And, and there's been one collared ewe that was predated by a golden eagle uh, already. And that's just since February. And um, during some inventory work that was happening up there associated with that work, there was another eagle found with um, uh, that had taken down a pair of lambs. So, you know, eagles are apex predators of wild sheep. And we currently don't have a way to try to discourage them from from being and doing what they do. It's just something that happens. So what we need to do in that sense is make sure that the other factors, the habitat and the production of sheep are looked after so they can weather that golden eagle storm when it happens in the spring. How does a golden eagle kill? I've seen some videos on YouTube where it looks like they're bombing them off the cliffs. Does that happen or? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So the, yeah, I mean, it depends on the size of the, of the, of the uh, individual. So you have a mature golden eagle, they can, they can actually knock down and take down a lamb. That's not a problem. Or they knock it off their footing and they tumble down the hill and, and they get injured and die that way. I was hunting a few years back and I watched um, a two-year-old uh, stone sheep ram walk down the ridgeline towards me. And he came within uh, a couple hundred yards and and I was sitting beside a rock and he knew I was there, but he couldn't quite place what I was. So he, he was approaching me because he was curious about what exactly I was doing. And um, I sat down and he came and he sat down, like I said, a couple hundred yards away. He's bedded down and he's watching me and, you know, I'm watching him. I thought, wow, this is a really cool experience. And he was on a pretty knife edge um, sort of a piece of terrain. So, you know, on the either side you take a step and you drop 10 feet sort of thing it was pretty precipitous area well as i'm watching him all of a sudden he vaulted i, I don't even know how he did it he was a, in a laying down position and he didn't stand up and jump to the side he went from the bed straight sideways and down the cliff so he dropped about 12 15 feet in a blink of an eye and a golden eagle came and lit right where he was. So clearly that two-year-old ram knew that that eagle had ill intent. And um, uh, he knew enough to get out of the, that area quick as he could. And like I said, the eagle came in, touched down exactly where he was 
bedded and, and flew off. So it is amazing. And maybe that's why that bed was there. Maybe the they know that there's an escape opportunity for eagles in the area just by whipping down off that cliff. But it was impressive. I, I would never believe that. Now, wow. the other thing I've heard about too is just lacerations. So if anybody has worked with eagles or you know any of our our um, rehabilitation centers, they're very careful about the talons because talons carry with them a lot of bacteria. And, um, you know, we think of them as being these sharp pointy needle like objects and they really are, but they also hold a lot of bacteria as well. So I've um, been told of stories where they will, the eagles will come in and lacerate the loins or the backs just by swooping over top of an adult. And then that adult gets sick over the course of a few days because of that bacteria. And then they, they become to a point where they can't um, look after themselves. The eagle comes in, finishes them off, and it's it's wow. a hot lunch, right? Wow. Uh, yeah, very cool. That's <laughs> I mean, uh, phenomenal to to see that, eh? Yeah, it is incredible. Yeah, um, Bill. One of the things uh, you know, I've heard you say this before around prescribed burns that that's not necessarily always. You know, everyone thinks, oh, just burn, 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 burn. Um, it's going to be good for wildlife. But I've heard you, I believe you said before that prescribed burns aren't always necessarily good for wild sheep, that that may not be the case, that obviously many cases they are, but that's not always the case. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And then uh, and then maybe just touch on on the fertilizer aspect. I know that you and you, we've talked to you before about um, this fertilizer project that you've been looking at in Region 6 and, and maybe touch a little bit on that. I just don't know a ton about it and would love to hear a bit more on it. Yeah, so, you know, we people, um, we, we're all victim of the same thing. We like it things to be simple and general and and um, and that's kind of the way that we roll stuff out. So when it comes to burns, that's kind of what's happened. Everybody has a notion that, that all burns are good. And, and certainly for bighorn sheep in hotter, drier climates, um, there's all kinds of science that shows benefits from opening up sight lines and um, improving grassland quality and all that sort of stuff. The, the science for thin horns is a little bit thinner. Um, and it, it's not so much about, um, you know, the rolling back that shrub and, and tree canopies and uh, as much as it is as sort of those other things that happen. So I'll give you an example. Peace uh, area, for, for example, between the 60s and the 90s, burnt hundreds of thousands of hectares of, of uh, 146,000 hectares or something like that. I forget the exact number, but it, it was well over 100,000 hectares. Um, at the same time, they were doing aerial wolf cult. That was in the 80s, mid to late 80s. And the elk population in that area grew from about 1,500 animals to 7,500 animals. Like it was a huge positive upswing in elk population. They clearly benefited from that burning. But, you know, when you have that high of a, of a, a freezer species walking around, um, you know, wolves and bears and all the other predators take note. So they move into the area in bigger densities and then, um, you know, predators need to eat meat and it doesn't matter if it's elk or deer or sheep. 
they need to eat. And so what we see is the spin-off negative effects um, that maybe aren't directly the result of the burn, but they're directly the result of the responses of wildlife and habitat condition from the burn. So it, yeah, I, it's all, um, it, it's convoluted and complicated and there's no um, easy outcome or easy way to say it. Uh, but uh, we just need to make sure that we don't oversimplify those relationships and, and think that every burn that happens in every location is going to be good for sheep. Because um, when you blow up an elk population like that um, and you the inventory information suggests that sheep population declined dramatically in those same in that same area, um, you know, it's, it's not the intended outcome you want it to have. Right. Devils in the details, eh? There you go. It always is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Bill, one of the things that you, this ver fertilizer uh, program you're looking at, um, is this being done in other jurisdictions? I know you're looking at it for, for BC. Kind of what's the latest on that? I've, I'm hearing a little bit more about it lately, but, you know, prior to a few years ago, I didn't know too much about it. So can you talk a little bit about what what's involved with that at all? Or Yeah. So um, uh, linked into the Cassiar uh, work, we, while we were out doing inventory work and watching those views use the landscape, um, you know, there was, there was some interest in enhancing the habitat at the same time. Uh, because of the way that, that Grace's project was set up, um, we couldn't actually sort of plan out any interventions at that point in time. It would, it would um, muddy the water on her findings too much. And and we don't want that, right? Like bad science is not good science. So we uh, we we wanted to stay away from that. So we did delay. We have held off. But what, as we're looking at at that range in the Cassiar, um, anybody who's been on those mountaintops will see there's a lot of gravel. There's not very much in terms of the way of trees or shrubs, and there's some grass up on top. So the conventional use of fire to knock that shrub layer and that tree canopy back, um, you know, we were hard pressed to find a spot you could drop a match that would benefit sheep directly. So we started to mull over other options in terms of trying to improve nutrition because uh, what we did find in handling those sheep is that they were not in great condition. And it's probably a response to sort of poor habitat quality there. And um, so, you know, what options do we have? So I started looking at some of the work that had been done in other areas. There has been some research done on fertilizer treatments, and they've had mixed results or mixed benefits. But I think part of that relates to the fact that the environment itself was not overly limiting in nutrient. Whereas in the Cassiar, where we have these you know, large areas where we have very little to no grass growth, it's mostly gravel with a few tufts and tussocks of, of, uh, of forage. Um, though that is maybe a unique situation where if we added that additional nutrient, those tussocks and tufts of grass might turn into communities of grass. And, and then provide more of that forage. So yeah, that's that was kind of how that concept grew and um, 
we're trying to get out now and just collect some baseline nutritional stuff. So one thing that is happening that's consistent, becoming more consistent across sheep projects. So the, the Northeast Burns, for example, they're going to be doing nutritional assessments uh, and micro and macronutrient concentrations, pre and post burn. Uh, we're going to do that on the, in the Tottigan area as well. Um, head out there this summer, collect some pre-intervention uh, samples for nutritional assessments, and then do the same thing in the Cassiar. So um, we sh we sh we're kind of leading the development of that level of detail in nutrition. And um, yeah, we, we will continue to learn as we get more information. Right on, Bill. Uh, very interesting. So, you know, I've taken, we've taken an hour of your day here, um, kind of, you know, on our way out the door, what's the state of wild sheep in BC and, and goats? Let's let, just on a high level, 10,000 foot level. How are, how are we looking? How just overall, are we stable? Are we good? Are we bad? Uh, how, how do you feel, you know, in your position and what you're seeing for goats and sheep in BC? Yeah. So I, I would, I guess I'll, I'll break it down a little bit. So in terms of bighorn sheep, you know, the populations aren't what they were. Um, you know, two decades ago, our sheep populations, well, three decades ago, our sheep populations, bighorn sheep were, numbers were in, in much better condition than they are now. But with projects that we're starting to roll out on the ground, hopefully we can swing that pendulum back the other way. And um, we're certainly able to get a lot more traction now when we want to propose some work. So habitat work or some disease work um, were, we're, we're able to actually do that. So hopefully we can swing those numbers back, but they are, they are down from what they were. Um, mountain goats across the province, I think they're down. They're, the general consensus from the regional biologists is that the numbers are lower than what they have been in the past. Uh, whether that's part of a, a regular cycle that's related to climate cycling, we don't have the level of detail to know that. So right now we're trying to do some inventory work. Um, we're, we're coupling along, you know, this nasal swabs with the compulsory inspected heads and rotating that around the province. Um, we're just trying to develop that body of information to help inform us on that. And then in, in terms of um, thinhorn sheep, uh, we are in the process with the management plan that we're uh, working on this year. Hopefully we'll have it wrapped up by the end of fiscal. Um, we have drawn some new lines on maps. So we know that the old subspecies boundaries uh, were not supported by the genetics work that we've recently completed. And so we are updating those polygons. But at the end of the day, even though our gross number of stone sheep went from, or, uh, stone sheep went from, you know, 12,000 down to say 9,000 or somewhere in there. Um, it, there's not, it's not that there's fewer sheep on the mountaintop. It's just that we're redrafting these lines. So if you look at doll sheep, for example, they went from uh, 400 animals to all of a sudden a thousand animals. So it, and it's not that there's so many more doll sheep. It's just that now the, we know that genetically animals we had been referring to as stone sheep or not stone sheep. So um, from a thin horn sheep population, I think we're still reasonably stable. We have a couple sore points, but those are localized things that we're going to have to wrap our head around in terms of 
of access and harvest pressure, but from a global perspective or a 10,000 foot perspective, our thin horn sheep are, are relatively stable. Right on, Bill. Well, that's uh, that's encouraging to hear. I, a little bit more work to be done on the the uh, the bighorn side of things, uh, and um, yeah, but it's uh, it's good to hear that things are are not in dire straits. It can always be better, but uh, just want to say that we're super grateful for all you do for you know your messaging, your communications, and just overall just for supporting wild sheep and and mountain goats in the province. And uh, and we're really grateful to have you in that role. That somebody is somebody's responsible and looking after and keeping an eye out for, for those species. Uh, you know, it, I think that was long overdue and it's so good to have you in that role. So thank you for your work, Bill. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support, you know, the, the, I guess, enthusiasm that you folks are developing too. Like I said, we've, we've not had that sort of level of interest and passion. So it's really nice to have the society be able to step up and sort of harness that and funnel it, you know what I mean? And, and, sort of focus it it's that's that's been hugely supportive like i said this popular this position that i'm in right now would not have existed without sort of that body of passion and those people saying hey there's something that needs to be done a little bit more here and that's so i'm i'm trying my best to not let you all down but i know that i will not get everything perfect so um by all means if people are passionate about a specific idea or they are seeing something that's not right, talk to your regional biologist or get a hold of me and let me know. Um, and, you know, because it, it could be anything from, hey, what about this new regulation? What if we were to manage sheep this way? Or what if we were to manage goats that way? Or I'm always open to that because I certainly do not have all the answers and I am looking for all the help I can get. Well said, Bill. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. And uh, always a pleasure to have you on on the podcast. We look forward. We'll do it again. We'll try and do this on a regular, you know, just keep keep everyone up to date on what's going on in the province. And I think having your uh, leadership and, and your communication out there is a big part of what you're doing. And I think that, 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 you know, our members need to stay plugged in and you do a great job of that for us. So thank you again. Yeah, thanks a bunch to you and Steve and the rest. Yeah.